This morning, we're continuing our series that we've been going through, looking at various figures or groups of people, collections of people in the Nativity story. And last week, we, we encountered the first uh, non-family. I, I kept saying that the shepherds were the first, but uh, the, the not, first non-family witnesses to the manger scene and when those shepherds dropped by from the fields. And what we saw was that their inclusion provided an example for us that the things that God values are oftentimes not the same things that we value. Right? In God's upside-down economy, the first recipients of this good news were not the successful, were not the influential, but the lowly and humble. It was the blue-collar, hard-working, average Joes who got that message first. Now, that was the account in Luke's Gospel. This morning, we turn to Matthew's gospel. Now, just like Luke, Matthew has a theme of this kind of bigger picture of God that he's working on through human history, and specifically through this unique birth story. Now, the first witnesses that Matthew reports, which as we're going to see in a minute, would definitely not have been the first people to witness Jesus historically, but Matthew on the heels of the birth of Jesus, showcase the Magi, the wise men coming from the east. Think of that Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And what we're going to see this morning is that their inclusion in the gospel narrative would have been staggering to the first readers of the gospel, specifically because Matthew's gospel was written to a Jewish audience. And there's some pretty unique ramifications of their inclusion. And I think, if we understand it correctly, that it might be a little ludicrous for us today as well. So let's pull out Bibles, Bible apps, or just listen as I read. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to do what I've done the last few weeks, that we're going to read it in chunks. So keep the text open, because we'll refer back to it two or three times. Um, I'm going to spend, just to kind of give you a forewarning, um, spend a pretty bulk amount of time focusing on the historical context, because I think it's really important for us to understand what's going on here historically and thematically, so that we can properly situate ourselves in, in the story. So let's begin by reading Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king. There's no mention of Herod in Luke. We have Quirinius as kind of the historical uh, um, anchor. Here we have Herod. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, if we're, we're taking this in chunks, but a lot of times the biblical writers were not, you know, they, they didn't write in a way for us to kind of piecemeal it, right? There were no chapter headings, there were no verses uh, in the originals. It was just writing. And so sometimes these things were meant to be digested on one sitting, not broken up like we do time and time again. So if we were just reading Matthew straight through, we have chapter 1 ending with the birth of Jesus and the start of chapter 2 with the visit of the Magi. Now, what the text does not make explicit is some time has definitely passed between these two events. It could have been up to two years. 
right? All those nativity scenes that you have, you know, uh, whether you put them on your, your mantle or you see, you know, see them outside that have uh, the wise men bringing their gifts before baby Jesus, they're all historically inaccurate, right? Because by this time, by the time the wise men showed up, Jesus would have been a toddler. He probably would have been walking around on his own, maybe putting a few simple words or phrases together. Now, what that means is that even though Mary and Joseph, they started up in Nazareth and for the census came down to Bethlehem for the, for the purpose of that census, it appears that they have settled in Bethlehem for the time being. Right? That city would have been Joseph's ancestral home. That's why they went there for the census. And so perhaps, we don't know why, but perhaps they stuck around to, to stay with some extended family. But they remain here in Bethlehem until Bethlehem, that city, becomes too dangerous for their family. And we're going to see that next week. They flee to Egypt, and it was when they returned to Israel after fleeing to Egypt is when they returned to Nazareth. That's when they go there to Nazareth permanently, and that's where Jesus was raised for the bulk of his childhood. Now, I mentioned that Herod was introduced here, and the introduction of Herod helps us to date the birth of Jesus because Herod was very well-preserved in the archaeological record. He was a pretty awful king. He was established as a puppet monarch on behalf of the Roman Empire. Right? His, the, the Roman Empire tapped on, on the shoulder and said, hey, you're this Jewish guy, can you lead them and keep them under control? You know, the Ju- Judaism, modern Judaism celebrates Hanukkah earlier in the month of, of December. Right? Hanukkah comes out of this revolt that took place, the Bar Kokhba revolt. No, I don't know. That was that was the Maccabean revolt. There was the uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt came a little bit closer to the birth of Jesus. Right, the the Jewish people kept rebelling against Greek and Roman rule, and so the desire was to have this puppet king who would kind of squelch those zealots, squelch those uprisings. But we know from the archaeology that Herod died in 4 B.C. So that places Jesus' birth somewhere between 6 to 4, 7 to 4 B.C. Now I know, you know, you might be hearing that and be like, whoa, you know, does that defeat the purpose of us having this like B.C., A.D. separation in the calendar? Uh, but but that, that wasn't invented until 525 A.D. So I'm sure they did their best to try to kind of piece things together uh, as to when Jesus was birthed to backtrack the history, but it's, it's a little off. So maybe arguably this should be 2025. I don't know, maybe we'd feel better about that, get out of 2021. But in this time of Herod, our text says that wise men, or some translations, if you're reading the ESV, there's a little footnote there that says, or magi, show up to Jerusalem looking for this newborn king. But who were the magi? Now, the Greek word that's used here is the word magos. It literally is the word that means magician. So putting together ancient history, these were most likely not kings, like we sing in the famous Christmas carol, but they were religious priests. They were followers of a religion called Zoroastrianism. It's one of the pagan, polytheistic religions of Jesus' day. These figures were known to practice astrology, demonology, what they called wisdom, divination, magic. Now, how, how they did that, right? I just mentioned this term divination. And, and one of the, the common ways of, uh, of practicing divination was reading the entrails of animals. 
Right? Think about it like, you know, we, we've got in, in psychology, you have the Rorschach test, right? those, those ink blots that, you know, are supposed to kind of be randomly, uh, 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 you know, you've probably seen these in the movies. People look at it and they, they kind of see certain pictures in them, and it's meant to kind of help map their, their perspective, their personalities. So think about it. this is kind of like the ancient Rorschach test, you know, just instead with like the intestines and liver of animals, kind of, kind of gross stuff. Now, it's possible, it is possible that these historic figures may have been introduced to the Hebrew Scriptures, and they may have been familiar with the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. It was very common in in these ancient polytheistic religions to have kind of an a la carte approach to spirituality. If you have an unlimited number of gods and goddesses, it's simple to just add one more to the mix. So the Hebrew scriptures may have made their way to Babylon, at least parts of them, because the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon for a number of years. So it's possible that they knew some of them. But even if they did, because sometimes folks will try to use that as as an out, like that these were somehow people who followed Jesus secretly, or followed Yahweh, excuse me, secretly. I don't want it to give us a false sense that these folks were in any way righteous before the Lord, right? They were pagans through and through. I think the historical testimony highlights that. Now, we don't know how many they were, right? The Western Christianity says that there were three of them in light of the three gifts that are given to Jesus that we'll see in a little bit. Eastern Christianity says 12. Not sure where they got that number, but it's another number of completion. doesn't really matter. But there would have been a whole entourage, right? These were people of influence, and they would have traveled together with, with quite the, the collection. So this, this collection, this entourage shows up in Jerusalem, and, and they say that they have followed a star to travel the nearly 900-mile trip, something that would have taken them several months to do in order to worship this king of the Jews. Now, before we get to the reaction of Herod in Jerusalem, let, let's take a moment and consider this. I think this is really cool. We, were, we, we sang uh, just Waymaker a few moments ago about God's just movement in history, miracle worker, right, bringing things together that are clearly out of our control. And so I'm going to consider this astronomical sign. So we don't know the means of this sign. There's a couple of options that, that scholars speculate that it could have been a natural occurrence that God synchronized with the uh, events with the birth of Jesus. That's what I I personally have a tendency to to hold to. Uh, It could have been a supernatural event, something that only the Magi could see and went with them as they traveled. Verse 9, as we see, uh, might might give some some weight to that argument. The third option is is an angel, because stars at times in Scripture were were symbols of, of angels. I don't know that I necessarily hold to that one. I don't think as many people do, but that's another option there. Now, I don't know if either of these are the same event, but I think this is so cool, showcasing the power of God in the heavens, right? that he can, he can align things in history for his purposes. So two natural occurrences could fit our timetable. So first, in 5 BC, there was a supernova. I don't know how they knew it was a supernova. I, don't, I doubt they did in 5 BC, but there was a, a sign that was attested to in the far east that was visible to the naked eye across a large cross-section of people. Maybe that's the sign that they followed. We don't know. Here's one that I think you should try on for size. May 27th of 7 BC. So it kind of fits a little bit earlier than maybe we would speculate. But there was something called a conjunction. A gathering of stars. 
a gathering of the planets in close proximity. Now, on that date, you have Jupiter and Saturn right next to each other alongside of the constellation Pisces. Now, get this. Right? According to Babylonian astrology, Jupiter, I think a lot of this, Greeks and Romans held this too, Jupiter was a star that represented the, the kind of primary, the preeminent deity of their cultures. In Babylonian thinking, Saturn represented the Jewish people, and Pisces, the, the constellation, had um, a, a connection with the land of Palestine. Right? P- put those things together, and you have some sort of premier divine being being born of the Jewish people in the land of Palestine. Now, we don't know for sure that that's the event that the Magi witnessed, but it fits well with the timing of Christ's birth. And it also provides rationale for the the Babylonian Magi, why they would have taken this long trek to Palestine and stopped at Jerusalem to get further clarification like they do. Right? Because it was the seat of Palestinian power. So again, we don't know. I just throw those things out there, speculation. But I think it shows that God can work in those, in those arenas. Now, in the midst of the historical context, though, the, the thing that is important that I want us to recognize as we read just those first two verses, the wise men were not God-fearers. They didn't secretly follow the Lord, but they were foreign sorcerers who find Jesus through God's intervention in their pagan crafts. God is working through their unrighteous witchcraft in order to draw them to himself. Keep that in mind as we continue. I know it's a lot of background. Let's keep going. Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, and they, they, Matthew quotes the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. All right, I'm not going to actually spend too much time on this segment because we're going to look more closely at this next week. Next week, we're going to examine the portrait of Herod. But when the Magi appeared, approach with their news, verse 3 says that Herod and all of Jerusalem were troubled. Now just pause for a moment and let that sink in. You have these foreigners who come to your soil looking for a king. Not just any king, the king of the Jews, who all of the Jewish scholars connect with the Messiah. In verse 6, this long-awaited figure that they were waiting for. And they are disturbed by the news. Jesus, when he comes, when he breaks into our life, he subverts all authority. And we see that realization strikingly with Herod. But again, we'll get there next week. 
The Jewish theologians state that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, as we see in verse 6. Their citation comes from, if you ever want to look this up on your own, it's a, a prophecy from the book of Micah, chapter 5. Right? Bethlehem was the city of David, the hometown of Israel's greatest king. It was promised that the Messiah, the one whom they were waiting for, would come from David's line. So it made sense that he would come from the city. So the wise men, you know, they, they pack up their entourage from Jerusalem and head out to Bethlehem. Let's finish with this, what they do when they get there. Matthew 2, 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Note, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, Joseph has already faded into obscurity. No, no even mention of Joseph there. They opened their treasures and offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the wise men set out again for Bethlehem. As they got closer, I'm sure there was some anticipation, months-long anticipation that was building in them. The text says they, they rejoiced exceedingly when they finally found the home where he dwelt. Now notice what happens when they go inside. They worship this child. The Greek word that's used here is reserved for the veneration, the worship of a deity. This isn't some human figure that they're honoring. They fall down before this child and they praise him. They praise him the way that they would praise a god. Don't miss this. This is what basically the shit's not quite explicitly, but I think you can imply it from the text that we saw last week with the shepherds. When they see the child, they break into worship and glory of God. And I think this needs to be, this ought to be our natural reaction when we encounter Jesus, one of worship. The Magi give them the child. They give this child three gifts that are mentioned, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A lot's been made of these gifts. I I doubt the Magi understood in the time when they were giving them the full weight of the symbolism of the gifts that they brought. But they esteemed this child the best way that they could. But again, that's how God works. He takes common activity, just human agency, and uses it to highlight something deeper that he wants to communicate to us. The first gift was gold. Gold is highly valued in the ancient world, highly valued today. Many take that to be a reflection of his royalty and kingship of Jesus, right? Because this is the type of gift that you would give a king. Next gift was frankincense. It was an incense. It was often used in non-Jewish regions as a perfume because it had a sweet fragrance to it. But the interesting thing about frankincense is that in Israel... It was one of the ingredients that was used for an incense that was only permitted to be burned at the, at the temple, at the altar of the Lord. I think this gift could point to the deity of Jesus. Again, the wise men didn't, didn't give it in that way. But given the context of Israelite history, they offer something that was used only, almost exclusively for the worship of Yahweh. And lastly, they give myrrh. 
Myrrh is another one of these fragrant kind of sap-like substances. But in Israel, myrrh was used for preparing corpses for burial. Through this gift, I think God was foreshadowing the nature of Christ's sacrificial death because these gifts, these three gifts, point to three different characteristics of Christ. His royalty, His divinity, and, and ultimately His pending death. Following their worship, they're warned in a dream not to head back to Herod. They go to their homeland. They go by a different path. Conflict is brewing. Again, we're going to look at that more closely next week. But it should give us hope that even in the midst, again, I just want to kind of leave this with you as a, as a down payment, a foretaste of this, that even in the midst of conflict and hostility, God is at work. God is providing a means for the magi. He's providing means and hope for the child as well. That's the text. Having looked at the text, what are the take-home points for us, right? How does the story of the Magi give us any insight in how we ought to order our lives here and now, some 2,000 years later? And I've got two things that I want to bring home for us. The first is worship, right? Because the response to Jesus should always be one of worship, celebrating God above all else in our lives. Now, I get this, right? Jesus calls us friends. We want to pal around with Jesus. That is okay, but it's important for us to recognize the distinction that he is God and we are not. Frankly, that should give us, it shouldn't be that Jesus, Jesus is accessible for us, but what we should get from that is not the commonality of Jesus in friendship with Christ, but we should be blown away that God himself wants to be our friend, right? I'm not friends with the President of the United States. He doesn't know who I am. But it would floor me if President Joe Biden showed up at my house and said, hey, Chris, let's hang out today. Right? It, it doesn't mean that the President is more accessible and that it's just, oh, it's common. We're just pals now. But I, I should be floored by that. Right? The essence of the first commandment is that the Lord says that we should have no other God before him. Now, in this instance, we see the Magi worshiping with their posture. They're bowing down, right? There's a physical element to that. But they're also worshiping through giving gifts to Jesus. And I think this shows us that there are many different ways to worship, right? And we can worship through our giving. Our gifts reflect the nature of the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And I, you know, I preached on that a little over a month ago. We don't need to, to delve into that right now. But we can worship through giving. We can worship through how we position our body. We can worship through song. We can worship through how we care for our neighbors. Right? We worship by putting God first in every arena of our lives. But the second piece of application for me, I think is quite staggering as we think about it. As we saw at the beginning of this message, those first two verses, the Magi were not followers of the Lord, right? They weren't God-fearers. They were quite the opposite, the type of person that a new normal Hebrew would have disrespected. But what God shows us in this encounter is a radical kingdom inclusion that would have appeared ludicrous to the original readers, but I think should shape, shape for us and show us how we can invite others to follow after God. And I read a quote from a pastor friend of mine in Pittsburgh a few weeks ago. I don't think I can say it any better, so I'm just going to read it for you this morning. This comes from Roger Woodworth. 
He says this. He says, in Matthew's narrative of Christ's coming, it's worth noting that the Magi were not led to the Christ child through conventional programs or methods. They found Jesus while practicing their idolatry. The stars, God's natural revelation, led them to his saving revelation, the incarnate word lying in a sheep shed. To those of us who tend to put God in our theological box, consider how he uses the Magi's idol as a means of inviting them to the first Christmas party. God has often used great and unusual measures to draw those who are considered outsiders and unworthy, thus making his church more interracial and merciful. Now what Roger is rightfully reminding us is that the wise men find Jesus not through theologically faithful means of communication with God, but what could have been considered the occult in that culture. But yet God uses those foreign practices to draw others to himself, especially to draw others who looked, sounded, and thought differently than a faithful Hebrew would have into that fold of God. Now, just a disclaimer, I I don't think this means that God is putting his stamp of approval on these pagan practices. It, It isn't God saying, well, you know, you can worship me however you want to, however you feel like it. God has given some clear boundaries as to showcase avenues that are permissible and examples of ways that are out of bounds. But what I want us to consider is how might God be working Even though there's areas that are out of bounds, how might God be working in those areas that we would label as out of bounds? How might he be bringing others to himself who don't think and act like we do? Now, as as Roger aptly noted, there are two ramifications of this inclusiveness of God. First, it creates greater diversity for his church, right? Because that picture that we see, that final kingdom of God in Revelation involves individuals, as the text says, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. All cultures are present in the presence of God. But you know what? Our churches don't often reflect that. Our churches in America alone don't often reflect that. Right? It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who once declared that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning was one of the most segregated hours in Christian America something that is clearly not in line with God's desires or plans. And I think one of the things that we can take, and this is a little bit straying from the text, but I think it's, a, it's a still a valid point, because it's easy for us to take whatever is the predominant culture and begin to assume that that is Christian culture. We kind of see this a little bit with the Hebrews, as they took whatever their culture was and assumed this is the only way that you can worship God through our culture. And that's what a lot of the major conflicts of the early church were about. Things, and it's no fault to them because that was, was revealed in the law of God. But things like dietary rules and circumcision and all of those types of things. Did one need to practice those things in order to worship God? And the gospel tells us no. That's not what it's all about. Now one area that I think we can see this in our culture is in the era of Jim Crow. 
right? Because you had American white culture that dismissed and denied the dignity of black America. And there were many places where the church, right, because that was kind of an American cultural thing, but the church followed right in step with that, followed suit with the broader culture. As a result, the ramifications of that we still see today, because it's not uncommon for you to go to a city or a town, you can do it right here in Swissville, and find multiple churches in the town of the same denomination, one that's primarily white and one that's mostly black. Now, the reason that these distinctions happened is not because, you know, the white people just wanted to hang out with white people. Well, it is kind of that. But the black people wanted to hang out just with black people. But it was because people of color were not welcome in white spaces post-Civil War. And so in order to worship the Lord, people of color had to form their own churches that looked and reflected them and their cultures. Right? The American... The, the, the history of American Christianity is rife with brokenness. That because of ways in which we thought God had to be worshipped, or we thought was fitting for God to be worshipped, has created division and separation. Places where we've thumbed our noses at God's work in reconciling nations and cultures and races to one another through himself. And I just want us to consider what that might look like. God desires to bring those who some might not consider to be part of his flock, into his fold? Are we open to the ways that God is moving in spaces that look different to our own? Or do we feel and see ourselves as the gatekeepers in that? But the second ramification, as Roger says, is that the desire is for the church of God to not not just be more diverse, but also to be more gracious. I don't think we are meant to be the gatekeepers. I don't believe that our our responsibility is to tell people who is in the kingdom and who is out of it. Because any Jew in the first century would have said, the wise men are out of the kingdom of God because they don't worship God rightly. But yet it is through those means that God is bringing them to himself, to Jesus. As followers of God, I believe that our call is to make disciples. It's very different being gatekeepers, being bouncers to the club, and being disciple makers. This is one of the final commissions that Jesus gave to his followers, to be a people who make disciples, to walk alongside of others, to help point them to a more faithful witness of Christ. But to do so requires of us mercy and patience. This encounter with the Magi, as they encounter the birth of Jesus, reveals that God is at work in something bigger than anyone in Jesus' day would have expected. He was showing his desire to expand the people of God beyond just one race and ethnicity. God desired to save more than just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. But he does so through some incredulous means. And it wasn't that the Magi just wised up to the ways of God and, you know, God rewarded them by giving them an an invitation to find Jesus. But he worked through their pagan systems so that they could come 
and worship Jesus. When I think about that, it opens me up that truly our God, the grace and mercy of the Lord, knows no bounds. My hope would be that we could be a people who see the work of the Holy Spirit, see places where God is calling other people to himself, even if it might be through some some, um, unorthodox means. And may we be a people not to block them at the door, but be prepared to make disciples, to take them under our wing and to help them sift through their worldview, helping them understand what areas of that worldview align with the truth of God and which don't. And there's there's a lot of stories you could go into of people who have done that well. May we be those people that are more inclusive in the kingdom of God and are merciful and gracious in that process. Let's pray. Lord, so often I want to use my theological prowess, my understanding of the scriptures to control you. To to say who you are allowed to work through and who are outside of your kingdom. And Lord, the story of the Magi just remind us that you do what you will do. Your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts higher than my thoughts. Lord, give me a, a heart. Give us eyes to see the places where you are calling people to yourself. Lord, you are a God of grace. You have been gracious for us. I'm reminded that I just I, I, I screw things up all the time in my relationship with you. But you love me the same. You saved me through Jesus. May we not be obstacles to people's encounters with the living Christ. May we not be gatekeepers and bouncers, but instead may we be ushers, helping them find your truth through your word, through the work of your Holy Spirit, or through your communities. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.